Welcome to Extrusion with me, Andy McCarl. And with Oppenheimer set to hit cinemas, we're going to be talking all things Christopher Nolan today. And it is my honor, my pleasure, my privilege to welcome my guest today. He is the features writer for The Escapist and The Movie Blog, the host of the 250 podcast. But most relevant today, he is the author of the fantastic Christopher Nolan, A Critical Study of the Films. He is Darren Mooney. Darren, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm feeling very daunted. I feel like you've maybe booked the wrong Darren Mooney with that introduction there. I will say this now, just to, I'll blow a little smoke up your ass before we start. I have to say, I absolutely love your observation and analysis of film. I think it's incredible. The knowledge and the love of film is something that comes across in all your writing and all your videos. And it's something I'm very excited to talk to you today about all thank of that. Thank you. Thanks. I'm very, that, that, that Irish thing where somebody says something nice and you should say, thank you very much. I really appreciate it back. But there's a party that wants to go, are you sure though? Um, like, <laughs> But thank you, Andy. How would you go away here with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cop yourself on there. Um, but no, thanks. Thank you. Something that really, I think, comes across in, a, in your writing your video, you tend to see movies, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of, they're, they're puzzles to be solved. And I think that's not unlike Christopher Nolan. Is that kind of specifically what made you a fan of his? And how did you become a fan of Nolan in the first place? I don't know if I see movies as puzzles to be solved, but I do think that movies are, even when they are big, broad, popcorn entertainment, four quadrant stuff, I think there's always something underpinning them. And again, it, like it's weird to have this conversation in the middle of obviously the writer's strike and the actor's strike in Hollywood and the emergence of AI art and all that sort of stuff. But I, I honestly do think, and this is probably going to make a bunch of people listening to this go, ah, you stupid fecker. But I honestly do think that if you look at a piece of art that has been made by people, you can usually find something in there, whether intentionally or not, that is interesting, compelling and offers a window into who they are. That's that Ebert argument about how you know cinema is the greatest empathy machine in the history of the arts it's this window that lets you see through somebody else's eyes and you know sometimes like with spielberg it's magical sometimes like with tommy Wiseau, it's like viewing the world through the eyes of an alien from another planet but you can't look away um <laughs> with nolan specifically i do think there's an element of that i think i am going to throw my hands up and say i'm an uncultured swine i'm a big blockbuster guy i love populist cinema um unashamedly i grew up watching the spielberg movies obviously star wars all that sort of stuff uh, as a kid and i just i like big cinema i like cinema that is bombastic that's loud that is welcoming that is accessible and that is intended for large audiences and i think over the past couple of years obviously not to get too down the path of talking about the state of cinema as an industry and an art form and all that sort of stuff it does feel like it's become increasingly polarized where if you want to be an individualist filmmaker you have to be making tiny projects you have to make them on a tiny budget and look Steven Soderbergh's right. It is easier to make a movie now than ever. Theoretically, you could make a movie on your phone. The mumblecore movement of the early 2000s meant that you could make a movie for $3,000, which was tiny compared to what it used to be. The barriers to entry are theoretically lower than they ever have been. But that also means that the middle has dropped out as well. So if you're not making a tiny indie film, you are generally making a big IP-driven project that is typically being heavily noted by a studio, screen for test audiences, and basically being a project that pleases everybody but satisfies no one. I think what I like about Nolan is that he is really the only director today working at the level that he is, where his projects are like entirely and undeniably his own. Uh, where you look at a Christopher Nolan movie and it is a big four-quadrant crowd-pleasing blockbuster, 
but it is also undeniably a Christopher Nolan movie, first and foremost. And so it has that perspective. It has that unique texture. It has that sense of feeling that you don't really get when you go into and I, and I love the Mission Impossible movies. I love the Marvel movies, all that sort of stuff. But they don't have the same sensibility that I would have associated having grown up in the 80s and 90s when when you went to a Tony Scott movie you saw a Tony Scott movie if you know what I mean you know they did that something they definitely do stick with you they, they resonate with you long after like even ones that I'm not a particular fan of I can I can see you a guy Interstellar you. right Interstell- <laughs> I have to say I rewatched Interstellar last night and liked it far like I don't know if you saw the, the review I posted yeah. at the time where I called it a pretentious <laughs> self-indulgent mess I enjoyed it a lot more this time around I still think it's going to be at the the lower end of a Nolan of a, a Nolan scale but a lower end of a Nolan scale I'd say is still you know the top 10% of films that I watch and to be clear I obviously love all these movies very much but I love that it's the movie after the Dark Knight Rises that you're like you know that's the indulgent pretentious one <laughs> that's the one that goes a little bit too far <laughs> I can forgive a lot of Dark Knight Rises with the circumstances going on like I've like, do we see there the, the, the Joker tattoo I, I'm you're gonna get me on the boat a lot easier with a, with a Batman film of how bad it is regardless but then it an interstellar love is the fifth dimension you know matthew mcconaughey hidden in a bookcase film i, I do that's that should be the pull quote that should be and, <laughs> and matthew mcconaughey is in a bookcase that could be a genre all of itself yeah did you get a chance to speak to to nolan at all during the the research for the book or hear any word back that he might have read or seen any of them no i mean again he is an intensely deeply personal private individual he doesn't really do that many interviews outside of when he has to promote a film and even when he does he doesn't tend to talk that much about himself he doesn't have a social media presence he doesn't have a mobile phone all the stuff that you've heard about him all that sort of stuff what i did get um and like i i will say this was kind of frustrating as a writer researching a book but i completely understand and respect it and think it's a very nice thing just in general when i did reach out to people who had worked with him uh, there was very much a kind of a protective vibe around it where it's like look we can talk to you if we get the approval of nolan and i'm like okay how do you do that it's like we probably don't even know how to do that but we'll let you know (laughs) i do know that there is a copy of an early manuscript of the book that was in his inbox in uh, syncope Um, because I know that I tried at one stage to get one of his producers uh, from Memento from the early films to consider writing a foreword or consider doing an interview and talking about his relationship with Nolan and he said he would do it but he would want a copy of the book and he would send that on and if he got approval back he would do it and I never heard back so I'm going to assume either Nolan never checked that inbox at some copy or he uh, hated it and despised it with every fiber of his being. Um, I will also note that after, I think it was a year after I did the uh, book, I remember opening the, the kind of press pages and seeing, oh, Christopher Nolan's going to sit down with Tom Sean for a book length review of his own works. And I'm like, okay, either he didn't read that book in his inbox or he read it and he had very, very strong thoughts and wants to set the record straight. <laughs> it is interesting how like I, I was a big fan of uh, I don't remember Batman on film on the lead up to Batman Begins, and the guy Jet, who ran who ran that site, Bill yeah. Ramey, Bill Jet Ramey, yeah, he was saying that um, Emma Thomas's wife and Christopher Nolan were kind of sending him emails of encouragement, kind of during the process, saying oh, like, okay. "Fair play for thanks for you know supporting the film," because obviously Batman was in the doldrums at the time, and he yeah. was very much pushing the narrative oh no let's let's give this one a chance so it's strange that he seems to just pull himself completely from the limelight after that and i think that kind of 
it helps and hinders in a way because he doesn't suffer in the way that Quentin Tarantino does where you will get people who's like, I'm not going to see a Quentin Tarantino film because I can't stand him. <laughs> Whereas I don't think anyone is going to say, you know, I hate the person, Christopher Nolan. I'm not going to see a Christopher Nolan film. You'd be surprised. Like, again, there, there is this weird thing about the, the personality that people tend to project onto Nolan as this person. And a large part of that comes from just the fact that he is an extremely exacting technical director where people hear that he doesn't like to shoot on digital and therefore make weird assumptions about him. Or they hear that he wears a scarf. And for some reason, that seems to upset people. Or you get like that anecdote that... Um, that Anne Hathaway told in that interview with Hugh Jackman, where it's like, oh, he doesn't allow chairs on set. And it's like, no, no, he does. You can you can Google like this behind the scenes footage <laughs> and see there is no way that he made The Dark Knight Rises and made Michael Caine and like Morgan Freeman like stand when they weren't shooting. But there is this I do think there is this interesting attitude where there is a bit of pushback to Nolan around the projected personality that I think some people on the Internet kind of put on it. And I think part of that is the, the the Kubrick comparisons that you seem to be very cold and very calculating. But then at the same time, you'll see, you know, come and go, oh, by the way, he loves MacGruber. <laughs> and I just, I love the idea of him sitting there. Even like Tom Hardy talking about how he was cast in Batman. He assumed it was uh, off the back of Bronson. And Chris and I was like, I, I've never seen Bronson. I, I was watching uh, Rock and Roll. And I just like, <laughs> Christopher Nolan sitting there watching a Guy Ritchie film going, yeah, that's the guy I mean, for me. I mean, that's the thing about Oppenheimer is like, he he didn't recognize Harry Styles when he cast him in Dunkirk. It's like, Roderick rules. That's that's a movie. Now, that is a movie. <laughs> just on his, his relationship with actors, like it seemed for a while that Bale was going to be his De Niro and Killian Murphy seems to have taken over that. I know he's done the, the most films with Kane, but... I wouldn't put Michael Caine and Christopher Nolan together as a duo, if that makes sense. Like, I wouldn't call Caine his kind of conduit the same way I would with Bale and Murphy. What do you think it is about those particular actors that that draws his attention? Well, I mean, in the case of Murphy, there's a very famous, famous story about, like, his eyes. Like, the, the famous story that he tells about shooting Batman Begins. And the reason why Crane has glasses and keeps taking them off and putting them back on is because Nolan was so, like, taken by Killian Murphy's eyes that he wanted to keep drawing attention to them in the frame. I... I don't know, like, again, Nolan's an interesting kind of collaborator, um, particularly in terms of, like, actors and, and kind of that sort of stuff, where there is a lot of overlapping cast. He has people he likes to work with. You you mentioned Murphy's the, the big one. Hardy's done quite a few as well. He's even done, like, two with Anne Hathaway, two with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, all that sort of stuff. And, at, you know, outside of the Batman trilogy as well, you mentioned he worked with Bale. Like, I don't know if he sees himself as having... Like being that Scorsese De Niro or that kind of like Mifune uh, Kurosawa thing, I, I think he just likes having a troupe. And he, you can arguably see that in, outside of acting as well, where he has those collaborators that he works with. He has like Wally Fister, for example. Um, he had like Lee Smith as an editor. Um, he, you know, had Hans Zimmer and he will rotate them out as he goes. But he does. I think he's still working with Nathan Crowley as production designer. I think he likes having a, an ensemble that he feels comfortable with. And I think that I actually really like that he went with Oppenheimer, which is this $180 million budget movie, according to the comments he made to Variety. It was a, it was reported as a $100 million movie. And apparently he's like, no, it's a 180 now. <laughs> um, coming out in the middle of summer from Universal, three hours long black and white uh, and what well, black and white in color an adaptation of like american prometheus which is a famously dense uh text when it comes to its subject uh an adaptation of a, a biography uh, the kind of movie they don't really make anymore no real established ip behind it and it's like okay 
who are you gonna cast in it? And it's like gonna cast Killian Murphy. And I we're Irish people, we love Killian Murphy. If you are aware of cinema, you probably love Killian Murphy as well. But the press cycle for Oppenheimer really drew my attention to how Killian Murphy is not a movie star, if only because I noticed how many Americans had difficulty pronouncing Killian. Are you referring to Cillian Murphy? The great Cillian Murphy. <laughs> I, I thought he was another actor in the film I was like, <laughs> because he kept calling Gillian and Cillian. I was like, who's this Cillian lad? Everybody, you know, he must be doing well if he's in a Chris Nolan film. Yeah, rhymes with inertia. It's like Sir rhymes with inertia. <laughs> uh, but like, that's the thing is that like, I, I honestly love that he's like, he clearly likes Murphy. He clearly resonates with Murphy. And he's like, I want to put, this is the guy to put at the center of my movie. Not a, not a movie star. We obviously, we do have Robert Downey Jr. in there. We do have Matt Damon. And like, you watch the TV spots Oppenheimer and they are fascinating because it is it's like starring Robert Downey Jr Matt Damon, Emily Blunt and at the end you get and Killian Murphy is Oppenheimer um, which is great like I, I love that we live in this world. Even all the press kit that seems to be just focused on, on Damon yeah, and yeah. Downey Jr so like they seem to be the stars but two names you, you touched on there I, I'm sure we're going to get into the weeds now on this uh, Wally Fister and uh, Lee Smith Previous both have kind of finished up essentially. Wally Fister went on to he's directing so you know transcendence, you know, probably should have stuck with Nolan. Uh Hoytvade, Hoytvade, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh he's there now. He's he done Nope as well, which I thought was one of those beautiful looking films I've seen in a long time as well. And uh Lee Smith now, who finished up, I think Dunkirk was his last film. Yeah, and Jennifer Lame, who edited Francis Ha, like that Greta Gerwig, like Nolan paradigm. Or like lame edited Francis Ha. She's an indie editor. And he's like, I want you to make my time bending uh, kind of like espionage thriller work. And I think they, again, you're not going to agree with me on this. I think it has kind of suffered somewhat. I I get the same. The comparison I make is um, when uh, Sally Menke sadly passed away, who used to edit uh, Tarantino's Tarantino's movies up to Inglorious Bastards, I think it was. And once she went, it's kind of, it's hard to get somebody in to edit a Tarantino film that's going to say, who will tell him no. Yeah. Or tighten it. <laughs> That's the same I felt with that with Tenant. I was like, if uh, if Lee Smith was still here, he'd be saying, you yeah, know, we'll lose this, we'll lose that. I don't know. I mean, again, I, I think Tenet is, is a fascinating movie because it feels like it's an ode to excess. It would always have been a tough sell, never mind coming out in the middle of the pandemic. It is remarkable that it made, what, $370 million worldwide in the middle of the pandemic? Um, and again, when you weigh that up, like how much of that comes from overseas, because like cinemas in the States weren't really that open and people certainly weren't going for very obvious reasons. Um, but I kind of admire the big swings of it. I think like if you look at Nolan's career, superficially, one of the big criticisms is, oh, he makes the same kind of movies over and over again in that he has his thematic preoccupations. Uh, if you want to be dismissive, you can say the dead wife. But like more broadly, you can talk about things like, say, the the interest in time, the passage of time, the dilation of time, flowing backwards, forwards, reversing, etc. His his skepticism about this idea of self-mythology and like great men who have these stories and lies that they tell themselves, these themes that he keeps coming back to, even like his cinematic language, he has those shots that he likes, the shot of, you know, somebody with their back to the camera with the world in front of them is, is like a typical Nolan shot. Uh, the wonderful barrel roll, he's very fond of a good old barrel roll, the camera kind of pivoting as an object moves, the car or in Inception is a great example, but Dunkirk has a really good one where it sticks to the mast as the ship goes underwater. Um, but like, as much as you can say that Nolan's movies are similar to one another and instantly recognizable, 
I honestly do like that he pushes himself um, and you can almost read each of his movies as a reaction to a particular strand of criticism of him where he's not resting on his laurels. So he comes out in The Dark Knight Rises and everyone's all like, oh, Nolan's a cold filmmaker. He's very cold, very emotionless. He doesn't make movies with real human hearts. So he makes Interstellar, which was supposed to be a Spielberg movie. And it's this story, as you said, about love in the fifth dimension and all this sort of stuff. And it's this outpouring, very strong, very emotional story. And I know it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. It, it gets me that reaction shot of McConaughey crying just breaks me every time. And, you know, he comes out of Interstellar and everyone's all like, no one's good, but his movies are just exposition. Like you watch in Inception and Inception is like half the movie is him explaining the movie to you. And then the rest of the movie is him explaining why it's not working the way that he said it would in the first half. So he goes, okay, let's make Dunkirk, which is a movie where there are no characters. There's no exposition. We just lob you in straight away. The famous story is that, and I, I do not believe this is true. I like to believe that this is Nolan demonstrating his right sense of humor, but the story he told where it's like, I wanted to make Dunkirk without a script, but then my wife talked me out of it, producer Emma Thomas. <laughs> and it's like, in no world did anybody ever imagine making a movie like that without a script. But I, that communicates the sense that, okay, I wanted to make a movie where there was no exposition, there was no briefings. He's talked about how, even when you compare that to something like, say, 1917, which is a movie obviously inspired by it, obviously in its shadows, 1917 still has the typical war movie scenes where you go into the bunker and Colin Firth has a map with little flags on it and says, you're here, you need to go here, this is what you need to accomplish. Dunkirk has none of those, which is remarkable. And Tenet then is, is kind of similar where it's like, what if I made a movie that was a conceptually complicated inception, where instead of going five levels deep, you instead have a movie that's going forwards and a movie going backwards at the same time. But what if I didn't explain any of that to you as it was happening and just tried to create a narrative that you could into it? That moment where Clement Posey says, you know, don't try to understand it, feel it. Um, I honestly do think that Nolan is pushing himself in a way that isn't resting on his laurels. And I, I love it. I can fully understand why if you were like, no, you know, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Prestige, those were technically perfect movies. Why can't you keep doing that forever? I can understand why you kind of go, not really working for me, Chris. You know, you're, you're taking chances that you shouldn't be taking, you know? You've touched on points there that I agree with. And I thought Inception, he talked down to the audience at certain points, like the whole point where it would stop and it's like, okay, we're going to explain the film. Got that? It would move on and go, I don't think they got that. I'm going to explain it again. Whereas what I liked about Dunkirk is that he didn't do that. And that was kind of shown when the people I would talk to him about, and go, oh, that was really great. You know, the three timelines, like, the three what now? Yeah, what? what? <laughs> you mean that what didn't happen? Was like, yeah. oh, it's not a concurrent story. Oh, well, I didn't pick up on any of that. And of course, John Nolan, his brother, then, then robbed that idea for Westworld <laughs> as well. So I'd love to know what happened in the Nolan household growing up that had them so obsessed with like you know, the concept of time or... You know, where they're just constantly late and they're saying, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm on a different timeline to you. It's all relative. That's not the line from Spider-Verse. You know, in, a, in another universe, so technically you are all early. Um, we talked about it in Working Without with Killian Murphy. But is there any actor or actress that you would say, I'd love to see Evan and Nolan film? Cruise is the big one. Um, like that, like Cruise is is kind of the one that immediately comes to mind. Um, there was this wonderful spate in at the turn of the millennium around the time Nolan was emerging, where Cruise was like using his leverage to work with like auteurs. I mean, obviously, like he he's making Mission Impossible. He's like Brian De Palma, obvious, right? Um, but he obviously does like Eyes Wide Shut, which is the last Kubrick film. He does two Spielberg films as well. 
He does like collateral with Michael Mann, which I think is maybe his best role on screen, give or take Magnolia, which is another auteur work. Um, and I honestly think that like Cruz at the moment is an actor who has worked very hard to protect his stardom. And he has this very closed ecosphere around him where he tends to work with a pool of very established talents that he knows exist in his orbit. So obviously Christopher McQuarrie has been his go-to guy and he scripts most of his movies. He'll polish even the movies he doesn't direct. Joseph Kaczynski and Doug Lyman have all both directed like multiple cruise movies, but they're not, they're not all tours. Nobody goes, ah, I can't wait for the next movie or can't Joseph Kaczynski, yeah. what's he got up his sleeve? And I love <laughs> Tron Legacy, to be clear. And Top Gun Maverick is obviously like the biggest or the second biggest movie of last year. I honestly would love to see Cruise put himself in the hands of an auteur. And I think that Nolan is an auteur who is perfectly suited to Cruise, if only because for the well, for the same reason that Mann is, in that they're very exacting directors. Uh, Nolan obviously owes a lot of his career to man. Like you could argue the Dark Knight is just heat, but with Batman in it to a certain extent. Um, but I think that Cruz is the living manifestation of destiny, obviously, but he's an actor <laughs> who is defined by his movement, by his force of will, by his presence. And I think that if you put him in a Nolan movie where Nolan's movies tend to be propulsive, big crowd-pleasing spectacles with big ideas underpinning them, I would love to see the fusion that would kind of respond from that. I mean, obviously, even beyond that, there's just the basic fact of Cruz likes to do all of his stunts himself. And Nolan is a director who famously favors practical effects where possible. So that would be kind of my big my big pitch. I would like to see Nolan work with another movie star after McConaughey. I know that Downey Jr. and I know Damon Count, but McConaughey is the last time he had a, like a a proper movie star. In fact, this is it the only time since Pacino, right? He's had a proper, proper movie star. Dackman doesn't count. Well, um, Inception, like DiCaprio. Oh, DiCaprio, you're right. Yeah, you're right, exactly. Dica and again, that's a movie where DiCaprio was very much a force shaping that movie, which I, and I think it's, I think you can kind of sense that watching it. I'd love to see that now that you say, because Tom Cruise, and again, I love Tom Cruise. He seems to have fallen into that thing. Like, whatever you say about Macquarie and Kaczynski being fairly, you know, competent directors. If there's something they want Tom Cruise to do that Tom Cruise doesn't want to do, he's not doing it. Whereas I don't know if he'd be afforded that luxury on a Chris Nolan set. <laughs> yeah, I I mean that that's the thing. There's the story about, and I I would love to know. I do not I do not know what this is, but there's a story about Pacino, where Pacino's asked about like working with Nolan, and he's like he he said it was a wonderful experience. He was like a really talented young director. It was a very efficient shoot. Had a really good time doing it. But apparently, <laughs> Nolan offered him another role at some point down the line. And Pacino said no, for whatever reason, maybe the role wasn't big enough, maybe the scheduling didn't work out, maybe the salary wasn't enough. But he said apparently after that, nothing. It was just radio silence. <laughs> you are dead to me now. You are dead to me now. And like, I'm for the life of me trying to figure out what that role would have been. I was, It can't be one of the Canes. So I figure he can't have been Kane. Um, could it have been like Maroney in the Dark Knight? But that feels like it's too small a role to offer Al Pacino. That's insulting, I think. Tesla, maybe? Ooh, oh, that's good. That's that's not a bad one. Although I do, I always thought that Bowie kind of felt like he was the fit from the beginning for that. Yeah, but again, that's the one that popped out that you'd say, like, that's the anomaly for me. Like, you know. In the right age range, you need a movie star for it. Yeah, 
No, Nolan could have been absolutely. Yeah, it could have been Bane for all. A much shorter Bane. <laughs> to be fair, he's probably about the same height as Tom Hardy. <laughs> that's fair. That's. Fair. I don't see him going to the gym quite as much. Um, to be that would Is be there... a great reveal. He just pulls off the mask and it's Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> I see you there, Betty. But <laughs> oh, you got a great city. <laughs> and I've got a bomb all the way up it. <laughs> all the way up it. <laughs> Apologies to everybody there. Uh, so there we go. Is there any genre you'd like to see him go through? Like, we've said there, he's kind of humorous. Well, like, I. I've seen clips of a short there uh, as Doodlebug where you'd see, you know, it's a man chasing an, in, yeah. uh, an insect. A little version of himself. Yeah. And then it turns out it's a version of him. And I was like, I kind of want to see like a, a comedy, like a Honey I Shrunk the Kids from Nolan. <laughs> but my, to be honest, the, the, seriously, I'd love to see Nolan do a Western. I did. Well, that I do. Like my, my, this, okay, this is going to be very in the weeds and I apologize for this. I think like Nolan as a filmmaker is fascinating because you have that juxtaposition of he's half American, half British, and he's kind of between the two worlds. And many of his movies are between the two worlds. Quite literally, his Batman movies are because they shoot on location in Chicago. But Wayne Manor is over in England, for example. And obviously, he's bringing in all these British actors to play all these iconic American roles as well. Um, but I do think that if you look at his first two movies, well, his first, obviously not his first two, but his second and third movies, so Memento and Insomnia, those are both kind of Westerns, if you kind of squint at them, where they're like frontier stories. Obviously, Memento is set in the desert and Insomnia is set in the icy frontier of Alaska. But they're stories of like lawmen who find themselves at the end of themselves trying to find justice in a, in a world that doesn't make sense, uh, you know, breaking laws and kind of like trying to make sense of the world. I only do think a Western would be a very good fit, but I don't imagine it would be a kind of a period piece Western. I imagine it would have to be a neo-Western of some description. But yeah, I, I think I think a Western would be a really, really, really good fit. Uh, part of me is also like, I would just like to see whatever the hell a Nolan romantic comedy would look like. <laughs> I know that he would be the only person who could get that Nancy Myers budget now. You know, the famous story yeah. at Netflix recently where she wasn't able to secure the budget that she needed for like the kitchens, the movie stars. Part of me is like the only way to get a proper romantic comedy made today because obviously people ask why do romantic comedies need to cost as much how do you how do you possibly justify the budget uh if you look and go back romantic comedies have always cost as much as action movies do it's because they spend their budgets in different ways they you need movie stars to sell a romantic comedy um and you obviously need sets and locations whereas for action movies you can cast a nobody or you can cast an up-and-comer but you need the sets you need explosions you need props all that sort of stuff so I would absolutely love to see Nolan's weird version. Oh, I don't know, Sleepless in Seattle. Something kind of like, something offbeat and something weird. It feels, it would be like a necro-romantic comedy, though, because obviously the wife would have to be dead yeah, before yeah. it starts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then it works backwards and you have the reversal, though. That's the key. Um, I, I know people have said horror as well. Like, to me, the, the scene in Memento when Carrie Ann Moss's character basically tells him, I'm fucking with you. And I've taken all the pens from the house and you're not going to know that I've done this to you. Yeah. That is one of the most horrific and intense scenes I have ever seen. And I just imagine a Christopher Nolan film with like 19 or about two and a half hours of that, I think would be absolutely frightening. 
I mean, again, like Dunkirk, it and Dunkirk is a movie that's what it's what a hundred minutes long, but it, it's incredibly intense. And I think Nolan's argument was like most of my movies are now like two and a half hours long, but this one is only an hour and forty minutes because there was no way to sustain that tension any longer without it becoming unpleasant. Even something like The Prestige, like I think the big reveals of The Prestige are deeply fundamentally unsettling, and the stuff of nightmares, that closing shot of The Prestige, which is you know. I don't know if we're going to assume people have watched The Prestige, but that that closing shot of The Prestige, which is deeply unpleasant and kind of like stays with you. I think I think a horror movie would be interesting. The only problem with a horror movie is that it's like his James Bond movie. At this stage, it would have to happen on the way down. Yeah. Like he's kind of acknowledged. Like I, I kind of admire the honesty of acknowledging. Yeah, I would have loved to have directed a Bond movie when I was on the way up. But now it would be a step down for me and it would mean having to compromise and sacrifice in that if I make a Bond movie, I will never get to make a movie like Tenet again or Inception again or whatever. Um, but I do got to wonder on the way down, because obviously at some point the career will have to enter decline. That's just the law of gravity. Um, like, does he end up doing his Bond movie? And that would be the point to do the horror movie because you, you need a lower budget. I do love that he's done that because you can even see that with people like with Chloe Zhao. It seems to be you make that film and then, oh, here you go. You've been handed the reins of mediocrity where you're going to be confined and everything that made you good in the first place will be taken away. Whereas he kind of done it on the way up and you know, essentially invented the, the resurgence of superhero movies and then just went, peace out. I'm never doing that ever again. <laughs> and, and, like, I love the dignity of himself and Bale. Like the the rumor going around that they wanted Bale for the Flash, that Bale was like whether for a cameo or whether for the role that eventually went to Keaton. I like that that Bale was like, no, I'm I'm done. Like myself and Chris, like we we did this thing together, these three movies, and they have a clear ending, and they have a clear story, and it's all wrapped up neatly, and we have no interest in going back to that, you know. Even the other Flash, the the Justice League Mortal, I've been we were doing a thing about greatest films never made. And I was reading a lot of interviews with Nolan and Bale at the time when Just Leave More was being made. And they were like, well, we kind of hoped that they would just piss off for two years till we finish <laughs> our story and then they can make whatever they want because I don't want any part of this. <laughs> just as they, actually, to be honest, that was, the, that was one of the big surprises. It's like, do you wonder, do you reckon if Army Hammer wasn't in the situation that Army Hammer is in right now, would he have had a cameo in The Flash? That is a really, that's a, I haven't seen that point actually, but this is why I like you there. And you come up with things I go, oh yeah, why has no, but it seems like it's right there in front of you and no one has ever thought of it. I think that, geez, that could have been a, a good one. All right, actually. Yeah. If he hadn't have loved eating people, that could have been his uh, a nice career resurgence from there. Yeah. I, like the PR team for the flash already had enough trouble with Ezra Miller. I feel like the person in the room was like, Army Hammer, Batman. <laughs> it's like, the PR team were like, get out now. Um, <laughs> Actually, speaking because that situation with Warner Brothers um, obviously pissed Nolan off. Another one, he's gone now, he's with, with Universal. There's talk of him coming back. How do you see any difference in that? Do you feel like you know he, he's making noises about coming back to Warner Brothers? Do you think he's going to stick with Universal? I don't know. Part of me just feels it's leverage either way. Like, I honestly, I am very excited for Oppenheimer. I'm really looking forward to it. The reports from Variety are that it needs to make $400 million to succeed. I imagine it will probably do that. I don't know how well it will perform outside of that, uh, because obviously these are not pre-pandemic times. Um, you know, Again, just for point of reference, the last non-IP-derived movie to gross over $800 million worldwide was, I believe, Inception. 
the last non-IP derived movie to gross more than $700 million worldwide was, I believe, sorry, live action, we should be clear here, live action English language, two important qualifiers, was Interstellar. Um, But I do wonder how Oppenheimer is going to perform. And I quite admire that, like, Nolan has found himself in a situation where it's kind of irrelevant how the movie performs because if it performs badly and Universal dump him, he just goes back to Warner Brothers. If it performs well, he just presumably stays at Universal and writes an even bigger check for himself. The thing about the Warner Brothers situation that I don't get that confuses me is the Barbie of it all, where Nolan announces Oppenheimer will be releasing on the date that it is in July 2023 in September 2021, as soon as the movie is announced as happening at Universal, it is dated. And even if it wasn't dated, you could probably take a guess at it because that is the Nolan weekend. The third weekend of July is the weekend, I believe it's the Dark Knight, uh, Inception, Dark Knight Rises. Interstellar went in November because that was a Paramount release. Dunkirk. Um, those five movies have all been or those four movies, sorry, apologies. Darren can count good sometimes. <laughs> uh, those movies were all like late July releases. They're all Nolan kind of like that's, he's marked that holiday. So when Warner Brothers come out and say, okay, Barbie, coincidentally, <laughs> is going in the weekend that we used to reserve for Nolan, you feel a little bit of passive aggressiveness happening there. And that only gets enhanced. I mean, I'm sure you, you've you heard about this. The press screenings for Barbie in the States where they are being, again, Oppenheimer put a pin in the calendar weeks ago for critics in, off the top of my head, Toronto, New York, Houston, uh, Phoenix, I believe as well, um, basically said, this is the date we'll be screening it. And then a week beforehand, the Warner's marketing team go, oh, by the way, coincidentally, you'll never guess when our press screenings are. They're on the exact same day Oppenheimer is. The point where, like, I believe the email said these are the only screenings and we are aware that this is, or at least the Washington, D.C. email said we are aware that this is when Oppenheimer's screening and this is the only press screening. Um, it's odd that you get this, but you also get this idea of Warner's courting him back where, you know, they paid the seven-figure bonus for Tenet, uh, which apparently Zaslov signed off mm-hmm. on. They Apparently they convinced him to bring post-production on Oppenheimer Oppenheimer back onto the Warner Brothers lock, which makes sense. Syncope has been based there or was based there uh, for you know over a decade. But it's fascinating that it's like the studio on the one hand is like, please come back to us. But it's also like, we will crush your stupid atomic <laughs> bomb movie with the power of Barbie. Um, the rumor is, I believe, according to Insider, that the relationship is that it's Mike DeLuca, who's the guy who's running the studio at Warner's, he's the guy who's trying to coax the relationship with Nolan uh, on a person-to-person basis. But the studio itself is behaving the way that we have come to expect Warner Brothers to behave uh, over the past couple of years. Um, this is the same studio that, like, after the Discovery deal came through, like, published a hit piece in Rolling Stone about the Snyder Cut, which was a movie that they themselves released. It's a very, very strange studio. It's, um, to me, it seems like this is kind of as close from a movie standpoint, we'll get to, to transfer news where it's like one director moving across. And even the, the Barbie scenario, it's, to me, that just reeks of getting whoever came up with the idea. Okay, every time Oppenheimer's mentioned, Barbie's going to be mentioned. It's like, you know, you're trying to get your players like, oh, uh, you know, Ronaldo's up for sale now. And so is Andy McCarroll. So every time that's, that's coming in. <laughs> 
I'm kind of thinking of I don't know if you've ever seen the fan uh, with, with De Niro. With, and with De Niro, yeah. and, there's a, a Tony great. Scott. There's a great moment in that where Wesley Snipes is being stopped by De Niro's character and he's like, what the hell do you want? And he goes, I want it so that every time they think of you, they think of me. <laughs> and I think that's kind of been Barbie's marketing strategy, stealing from the, the 1995 film, The Fan. And, and it's so surreal because Barbie is going to make more money than Oppenheimer, at least over its opening weekend. They'll probably leg out to something similar. But like Barbie is arguably kind of much bigger in terms of press and publicity. And it's, kind of, it's like a spite house. It's like a cinematic spite house that has been erected <laughs> where like it's become the greatest marketing campaign for Oppenheimer is that every time somebody talks about Barbie, they also have to mention Oppenheimer's coming out the same weekend. Because before then, it was like, okay, Barbie is like, what is it about? What's kind of about the toys? It's not, is yeah. this a kind of don't worry, darling situation? It's like, I know, here's our market, <laughs> here's our marketing. Oppenheimer. It's like, yeah. wow, just, just anytime they mention Oppenheimer, mention Barbie, there you go. People associate the two together. I mean, like conceptually, it's, I, I think it's a good thing conceptually. I love that everybody involved has been magnanimous about it. Mm. Um, I love that, you know, obviously like Killian Murphy said, go see both. Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig have photos of themselves taken with tickets. Tom Cruise <laughs> has been put in the most horrible situation where apparently you heard that like it was at uh, Matt Baloney, the guy, the editor of The Hollywood Reporter was like, by the way, Cruz has been meeting with IMAX and trying to get them to steal screens from Oppenheimer <laughs> to give to him so that like Mission Impossible can continue to earn. And as soon as that news that news breaks, he's like, by the way, already booked tickets to Tenet and uh, <laughs> sorry to Oppenheimer and Barbie. Just want you to know, love movies, love movies so much. Even the way he answered that, he's like, well, what are you going to do? Someone asked him, what are you going to watch first? Or what are you going to watch? Which one of them are you going to watch? And he says, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to a sold out theater in the morning and go and see Oppenheimer. Then I'm going to go to a different theater. And what, like, even answering that was like, why didn't you just stay in the same cinema? You were even answering this weird. <laughs> and then I like that thing where it was like Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig holding the tickets up in yeah. front of the screen. And then Tom Cruise and Macquarie done it. And I just got this image of some poor bastard PA with half an email written to Chris Nolan and Killian Murphy going, how do I phrase this? Lads, any chance you can stand in front of a Barbie poster together this weekend holding cinema tickets? The Oppenheimer PR who managed to convince Killian Murphy to do like two web chats from his house on a laptop. <laughs> like as far as publicity goes. Um a part of me is like you could probably get Damon and Downey to do yeah. it. Like that, that's the thing. That's the wonderful. And again, obviously, like Murphy is still part of the PR. Like there's the photo of all the Oppenheimer cast having dinner together and Killian Murphy's in the middle of it. I just love that it's like <laughs> they do like the cool promotional videos where it is, it's blunt, it's Damon, it's Downey. And you're like, it's Killian Murphy just like waiting off the edge of frame, looking slightly <laughs> embarrassed. Is this what's happening right now? I, I saw uh, an interview with him on, I think it was on Wired or um, Variety or one that, and the guy turns around and goes, oh, what's your favorite, uh, you know, gif or emoji that you overuse in text? And he goes, I use the one where you write and spell words correctly. <laughs> I love Killian Murphy so much. Um... And then the guy, instead of just going, all right, read the room. His next question was, are you familiar with the disappointed Killian Murphy meme? And of course, Killian Murphy's response is, what's a meme? <laughs> I do like the idea of the interviewer, like sorting through like, Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Not not that one. Who do you think the new Spider-Man's going to be? Um, <laughs> that, sorry, that's a Barry joke. I stole a Barry joke. <laughs> We're just briefly going to, to the superheroes uh, with this. With speaking of Spider-Man, we're going to Batman. My favorite, one of my favorite films of all time. Definitely my favorite yeah. superhero of all time. Batman Begins. I think is as close to a masterpiece as you're going to get. And the 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 criticism when we've spoken about this, no one is kind of cold and emotional. I think that might be his most 
emotional film. Like the scene where uh, you know Wayne Manor's on fire and it's going down, and and he has the yeah. the scene with Kane. He's like, "Why, why do we, we fall? fall?" And he's like, "You haven't given up me." And I was like, "That it hits more than anything in the MCU, anything in the DCEU or the DCAU or the LMNOP universe." I absolutely adore that. I know we've kind of been ragging on Dark Knight Rises. Where do you fall within the the Batman Begins Dark Knight debate? I, w- I would be like, I think they're all great. Like, again, I, I wrote a book on Nolan. I am very much a fan <laughs> of Nolan. When I was ragging on The Dark Knight Rises, I was very much doing it affectionately. Um, I rewatched The Dark Knight Rises last night. It is the most maximalist movie ever made. It is kind of incredible. It is like the most movie. It's one of the it's the only movie I think Nolan made where he didn't have a clear idea of what he was doing. He just knew he had to make a third one of these because obviously he was at Warner's. He they'd been very helpful to his career. He'd made the previous two movies and he kind of he owed them this. And also he probably to a certain extent maybe owed the cast and crew it as well. Um, but there is I'd, a sense. I'd watching... love just sorry to go. I'd, I'd love. I mean, one of the like the great unknown. Unmade, what yeah. that would have been like if Leila Joe had her survived. That is, yeah, I do wonder about that because I mean, I, I think so much of that movie is kind of about Ledger to a certain extent, where the ending that it gets, which is like probably the happiest ending that any Nolan movie has, where like everybody gets to live happily ever yeah. after, pretty much. That feels like it's a choice that is very much informed by what happened to Ledger. Like, it feels like it's very much a response where he's like, okay, these movies, the previous two movies, which are very somber, very dark pieces about how Bruce's obsession is probably going to destroy him. How about I give Bruce the only happy ending the character has ever had in any media ever? Feels very much like it is a response to the tragic passing of Heath Ledger, far, far, far too young. Yeah, I I kind of, I wonder myself, it would not have been the same movie in any way, shape or form. I think I think it's impossible to look at the Dark Knight Rises and imagine what that would have looked like with Ledger. Um, I imagine he had to have had some. He says he doesn't. He says he made each one up as he goes along, but he has to have had a germ of an idea. The same way that he says, like Tenet came from, you know, the shot the shot in Memento where the gun goes backwards, and he's like, I'm going to make a movie out of that. There has to have been something that he's like, I know what the movie is going to be with Ledger. I have some idea what we're going to do with the Joker the next one but yeah i i love all three i am i'm a huge nerd i know i was disparaging towards the mcu earlier and all that sort of stuff but I, i'm a big comic book fan i always have been always will be as a kid i love batman and i remember going to see and it, it's funny you mentioned that specifically with the press coverage um of like you know jet and and kind of like mm-hmm. batman on film i remember going to see at the screen cinema just off trinity college i was a college student i was knocking off like not going to between lectures or whatever and like having no expectations of it because i was a generation who had watched like batman forever and batman and robin and catwoman and all that sort of stuff i'd had any enthusiasm for batman beaten out of me um <laughs> by cinema and i remember going in at like two o'clock in the afternoon with two mates and coming out and going that's that's a good movie that's like a really good movie it's not just a good batman movie it's a fantastically constructed Batman movie. And I still remember to this day being in Savoy 1, which, again, I don't know whether how whether we should assume that listeners know what Savoy 1 is, but it's the biggest screen in Ireland. It was the biggest screen in Ireland. It's just an incredible cinema. Um, 2,000, maybe even 4,000. I don't remember what the capacity was, of it, but it was thousands. And I remember being in that in opening night for The Dark Knight and... That crowd, just the electricity. It's one of my favorite movie going experiences ever. Um, and I think 
it's hard to put into words now because obviously I know everything is superheroes now and many of the movies are great and good and all that sort of stuff. But it's like when Batman Begins came out in 2005 and The Dark Knight arrived in 2008, it was like these were real movies like starring yeah. Batman. Um, like Tom Sean writing in The Guardian compared like the Dark Knight trilogy to the Godfather trilogy. And I don't think that's entirely unfair, which is like the fact that I'm I'm not immediately like that's nonsense yeah. tells you how good those movies are. That he's taking a populist genre film, um, you know, something that is seen as being low culture in the 1970s. It was gangster movies, crime movies, film noir, etc. Now it's superhero movies, and using them to tell a story that is, you know, literate, uh, literary, character driven, but also fundamentally about like world as it is now in America as it is now um, you asked me to pick one I would probably go with the Dark Knight because I'm very boring and very basic <laughs> uh, but I do think that all three of them are phenomenal and I think the three of them together are a landmark in superhero cinema because they feel we mentioned it earlier but they're the only they're really the only one of these that I think of having an ending um, they're the only like big superhero saga I think of having an ending like the X-Men movies just went on. Um, the Spider-Man movies, the Sam Raimi movies, like he clearly meant to make Spider-Man 4. So it doesn't really wrap up with Spider-Man 3. Uh, and Spider-Man 3 has its own problems. Um, to be fair, <laughs> One or two. Uh, yeah. One or just, just a couple. Just a couple. The, um, the, the, I will not hear a, an ill word said about Tobey Maguire's dancing. Jazz club menacing. Uh, but. Even something like, say, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which I, I really like, I think is an, you know, it's a great ending for those characters. But that ends with text promising Star-Lord will return. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like it's conclusive. It doesn't feel like it's wrapping anything up. Whereas it really does feel watching those movies like Nolan put everything that he had on the mat. He left nothing behind, nothing for him to pick up in 20 years time when his career is on the down path, you know? And I think that's incredible. It's It's what I love about them. And I think they're, and it's weird that that was like the start of the comic book. They're the last ones where you'd say, that's a good film that has comic book characters in it. It's not a good comic book character film. And even to your point there, like when he done begins, there was like, you know, he had to be begged essentially to do the sequel, which, you, you know, you kind of, it's kind of agreed that you're going to do three films. He essentially started that off. And I was just laughing there thinking about the, the Savoy. I went in a couple of years ago and there was one of the ushers there. And I was like, is it true they're after splitting screen one into two screens now? And the usher just had this little, it was like gross point blank where the guy got, where Martin Blank goes back in his house as a quickie mark. And he just goes, oh, they fucking killed her, man. Hang on. Walks in, in the middle of a film. Like the film is playing on screen one, opens the door, yeah. shows, goes, look what they fucking done to the earth. <laughs> <laughs> and he's explaining to me where it's split and where the balconies used to be. Yeah. And people are looking back on, would you shut the fuck up? <laughs> I mean, to think that's really shocking. Like. One of the, I don't know if you went to that press screening, but like Babylon now, now, sorry, this is very inside baseball and I apologize to listeners, but nowadays most screenings take place in say the lighthouse or in Cineworld um, or even the IFI or whatever. Very few of them take place in the Savoy, but I do remember the weird sensation of watching um, Babylon, which is Damien Chazelle's kind of eulogy for cinema as an art form. That's the last press screening that I saw in what is now Savoy One, but which feels like the living room of my house. And again, great staff, lovely cinema, but it's like you, they carved up and kind of like gutted the cinema. And I remember sitting in that what used to be part of an auditorium that held thousands of people, but can now seat about maybe 50 at a push. 
and watching Damien Chazelle go, yeah, no, cinema's probably dead. And me going, you know, this feels like some sort of metaphor. Of yeah. some kind. <laughs> I, I have probably actually Christopher Nolan film in Savoy <laughs> would be the worst experience in the world because the, the sound system is built for an auditorium for concerts <laughs> where you can hear music, yeah, yeah. but you can't hear dialogue, <laughs> which is bad enough in a Nolan film at the best of time. So I can only imagine I'll have to bring a don't try a, to understand it, Andy. Just try to feel it. <laughs> I my pet theory is that like and again, my, I love that this all goes back to The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight Rises is like patient zero for everything with the Nolan movie. But I honestly do think the... Obviously, they previewed 10 minutes of The Dark Knight Rises before, I believe it was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Mm -hmm. um, they did, like just like they previewed, I think, 10 minutes of The Dark Knight or the prologue of The Dark Knight before something else in 2007. But I believe there were some criticisms of Bane's dialogue, there's the thought, um, that he was hard to hear in that opening scene. And so Nolan has claimed he did not edit or alter or do ADR. However, according to people who saw that prologue and then saw the same scene in the finished movie, they suspect that there was some redubbing and some ADR around Tom Hardy's Bane. And part of me really does feel like that's another one of those Nolan reacting against things where, okay, I compromised once. I gave you the ADR additional dialogue track over my action. Never again. <laughs> On general principle, as a result of this, you will have to just feel it. There will be no ADR. There'll be no I just dumb. thought that was unusual for a scene where Aiden Gillen in a complaint about accent wasn't directed at him. So <laughs> if nothing else, no one gave that. <laughs> just to touch on there as well, you mentioned that we were talking about Batman. Uh, you touch on briefly batman forever is it true batman forever is kind of the you know your origin story for movie criticism as and that was the first film you realized wait they they could make bad films <laughs> be bad yeah no no batman forever has a very unfortunate place in my cinematic history i remember seeing it i used to live in ghana in west africa and we would travel by plane every once in a while to come back and I remember in Ghana, we had one cinema and it was far away from the house. So we never really went that often. I think the only movie I remember seeing there is Richie Rich of all things, which is a very <laughs> strange memory to have. So when we were traveling on planes, they'd obviously they'd have movies on planes. And, and like this was radical to me. Um, and I remember watching Batman Forever on the KLM flight from Ghana to Dublin. And like, again, I, I was a kid who grew up, I'd watched like, Batman 89 because my granddad had recorded it off BBC one Christmas and kind of given it to me. It was a really strange version because it edited out a lot of the violence because it was clearly aimed at kids. Uh, I remember watching Batman Returns a similar way, which is a, also a very inappropriate movie to watch at a young age. And I loved them. Obviously, they were a huge part of my childhood. And I remember sitting on that plane watching Batman Forever and having this sinking feeling of this isn't good. Like, the, the, it has Batman in it, right? And I know for a fact I like Batman. Therefore, the movie should be good. It has a good thing in it. And that being a moment where, like, as I guess I was like six or seven year old, however old I was, having that moment of realization of, wait, thing movies can be bad for reasons that are beyond the content of them. Like you you could have something I like in a movie, and the movie could still be bad. And that was like a big eye-opening experience. I realize I'm making seven-year-old Darren sound like an idiot, but most <laughs> seven-year-old versions of people are. Um, and like that sensation stayed with me in a way that is like profound and still, I still kind of get it when I catch Batman Forever on. I just like the fact that that just coming out for the first time, like, you know, the, the Schumacher neon nightmares. Kind of like, wait, 
this thing I love can be bad sometimes. And, and it's it's not even it's not even like Batman. It's cinema. No. It's like it's not even like the character <laughs> or the actor. It's like the entire concept of an art form. It's it's like that moment when you when a child first realizes that like a parent's gonna die. It's like that moment when a when a dog dies and they realize that like they're everybody they love is gonna die and it's a profound psychological experience. Except for me, it was nipples on the bat suit. <laughs> it's. <laughs> Uh, I had a VHS copy of that, and Jonathan Ross's review is on the back, which says one of the greatest movies ever made. Well, Ross says the title to him. <laughs> now, I'm well, I'm well aware I'm in the minority of being like Batman and Robin, not as bad as Batman Forever. Um, I recognize I'm in a minority on that. I'm not going to pretend to speak with any moral authority, but yeah, Forever, Forever still still stays with me. Um, it's a movie that does get under my skin. It's, I think, what really bothers me about it is that it it's a Batman movie that doesn't feel like it's a Batman movie. It feels like it's a Superman movie and yeah. that it's a love triangle between like the female lead and the two secret identities of the leading actor between like Chase is romantically involved with Batman, but Wayne is chasing Chase. And it's yeah. like, that's, that's not Batman. That's Superman. You've just taken the core dynamic of Lois, Superman and Clark Kent and just transpose it onto Batman. And it's like, what is the, point why, why would do you that do with that? the scene on the balcony where he, he's with her as batman yeah. and she's like oh there's someone else and he walks away he puts the head in, and next he comes up with a big smile on his face like that that's superman that's, too yeah, yeah that's exactly <laughs> it yeah just again just go back to your book there the film and again correct me if i'm wrong i would imagine based on reading that the prestige would be top of the list for you for nolan and yes. for me i was huge Nolan fan coming up that like I love Memento I love Batman I read the book The Prestige and what struck me I think Nolan does well I think he done it with Insomnia he done it with Batman is he's able to take a pre-existing property know what works on the page and what won't work on the screen because the, the Prestige for those who haven't read yeah. uh, the book it kind of has a wraparound arc it? where it's set in, in modern day which is completely removed from the film as well yeah. The grandkid, I, isn't it, or something? If I remember, yeah, it's been a while, yeah, yeah. And he's essentially Angiers is living out the back in in a shed with a load of. There's a the end. The, the book ends with like rows and rows of clones, and one of the Angiers is still alive. Okay. Essentially, is you know the, the crypt keeper for his own demise, <laughs> which which sounds every bit as ridiculous. Well, I suppose if you said a magician with cloning machine, it's, it's very ridiculous <laughs> in itself. But he he plays that dead straight. What is it about the Prestige in particular that you think? the pinnacle of this director who's had you know, some of the most, the greatest films ever made. It's hard to kind of reduce it down to just one thing, but I think it is the fact that it's a combination of almost everything that works in his filmography in a way where nothing really drowns out anything else. Where, to pick an example, you know, obviously you watch Inception and you will marvel at the structure of it, the layers within layers within layers, the recursion of it, the idea that it goes five levels deep and you have action that is rippling across five levels, but it's designed in such a way as to draw your attention to the structure of it. You are constantly cutting between the levels. As you said, it is constantly explaining itself to make sure that you're keeping up with it as it's going along. I don't mind that too much, but it, it is like it's very much calling attention to itself, whereas... If you think of the prestige as a movie, it doesn't call attention to it. But like the structure of that movie is like Borden is reading a diary from Angier, while Angier in his diary is reading a diary from Borden, while both of them are writing as a piece of performance for the other. So you have this kind of layering within layers within layers of narrative in a way that is 
consciously what the movie is about and that the movie is about this idea of perception and there's this idea of authentic self that is very difficult to understand that you can be like so interconnected with somebody that you will never fully understand them despite being literally reading their diaries (laughs) because it's all performance um but it it never really draws your attention to it. it's just a very elegant way of telling the story and so much of that movie is all of nolan's tips and tricks sorry uh tricks and kind of like yeah, shortcuts and all that sort of stuff, but done in such a way that they never feel intrusive or distracting. Like the great thing about the prestige is it it tells you all of its secrets up front. It doesn't actually conceal anything from you. It just uses misdirection. If you watch the movie a second time, you'll be like, yeah, they, the movie pretty much told me exactly what the twist was. Like, what do you think Angier's machine does based on what you see it do up until that point? You know, what do you think that the Borden twist is the first thing that Cutter, Michael Caine's character, says it is? Like, when Angier's like, I can't figure out how he does this impossible trick, Cutter goes, he's using a double. And Angier spends the rest of the movie going, he can't be using a double. <laughs> But it ultimately turns out, shock horror, um, it was a double. Sorry, spoilers if we're spoiling the prestige. But like, it's a movie that is so cleverly constructed and so skillfully constructed that it never has to lie or conceal information from you, but still manages to surprise you. And I love that like, even beyond that, it has layers where it works as a character study of these two men. Like, Angier and Borden are fascinating characters. The two central performances are amazing. I know this is going to be controversial. I don't think Hugh Jackman has ever been better. Um, I think that, like, Bale is almost as good as he has ever been. He's not quite pushing himself in the way that he does in some of his more extreme physical performances. I don't know if he's as good as he is in American Psycho, but he's really, really good. The supporting cast is incredible. But even if you step beyond that, it works really well as a metaphor. It works really well as a metaphor for like storytelling and how you tell stories and story construction and these things that like Nolan is fascinated with. It works even better if you step back and go, oh, it's a story about great men. It's a story about how terrible like men and like great men in particular are when they try to control the narrative, when they try to construct this mythology around themselves, which is a big, obviously a big preoccupation for Nolan as well. You can step back further and go, oh, it's a metaphor for late capitalism. It's about the this idea of like dehumanizing and industrializing something where one guy has discovered that this poor guy has turned his life into a product that he can sell. He's compartmentalized his life and sacrificed the idea of having a full, fulfilling life because he has found something special that he can exploit and use to leverage to get himself a, a, a nice house on a good street, a steady income. And his rich best friend comes along and goes, happy having that. And so decides to like break the laws of physics, biology, and morality to find a way to turn it into something that could be like mass produced and factory assembled. It's all of those things and so much more. And It's a movie that whenever I go back to, I find something more in it, which is remarkable. It it, like that it for me is a perfect movie. It's a movie that I watch, you know, five years ago and it means slightly different than it does when I watch it this time. You know, Um, it's it's something that I love about all movies that can do it. uh, But The Prestige is a movie that just does it 
continuously it's constantly revealing itself uh in ways that are brilliant like even even last time i was watching it it was like it opens with the trick showing you the bird being squashed and replaced with an identical bird and you're like exactly he's just found a way to do it with himself it's incredible you've articulated that perfectly why it's so good and just i just had two things with there you'd see something like the sixth sense once you know the twist that film you know a five-star film becomes a three-star film very quickly on on repeat viewings of that this if anything enhances it and i just over over lockdown my missus had never seen it and i was like she watched that and she came i was like what did you think of it she goes well that was really sad i was what and she and how she focused it on was on a was on borden's wife she was like, I felt, I, felt, I felt really sad for her because, because she, she didn't know, did she? And I was like, no. Because I just think like, he's had, you know, basically created this life that she thinks she's a part of to do as, as she called this magic show. And I was like, I've never, like I've watched that film a million times and the perspective of that character was never my prominent takeaway from it. But, and, and again, like it, it's, 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 that, that itself is like a pocket Nolan theme where Nolan's theme is, Nolan is, as he gets older and as he becomes a parent, like even something like, say, Interstellar is about the idea of the great man who leaves his family behind to do work and how horrible that is. That's what that arc is. That that yeah. arc is that in miniature where it's like she is destroyed by it because he's not giving himself to her entirely because he, he can't. Um, it's it's so, so beautiful and so kind of amazing. I will slightly push back. I will say. I think the sixth sense isn't as good when you know the twist, but I still think it I think. You know, there's some good stuff in there. I think it's very interesting to watch as a late 90s movie where it's like the end of history. Mm. What does anything mean? Does anything have any value? All that sort of stuff. Do we even exist? Kind of Matrix-esque movies mm. that were very popular in the 1999, you know? I just think that the that film, the concept is the whole film. <laughs> I don't think from a, a dramatic, I don't think the characters <laughs> in that, like, uh, Bruce Willis or Cole, I, I don't think them as characters are as interesting once you know the the end game essentially. I just find it briefly just to finish up here, uh, talking about great men who sacrificing Oppenheimer. <laughs> Christopher Nolan notoriously has received no love from the Academy. He, he was nominated for a Memento for screenplay, Inception I think got picture and screenplay, and Dunkirk was picture and director. Has won none of them. Yeah, I can see this Oppenheimer. No matter what it's like, I can see this being his departed where he gets everything for this do you think that's going to happen or do you think you know the fact he hasn't got anything up to now is going to keep going i suspect it'll probably keep going for that well like again like it's insane to me that he gets nominated his first director nomination is opposite like greta gerwig and jordan peele and i love both of those directors i think they're fantastic but it's amazing that it's like he's been around at that stage for two decades and it's like my first director nomination <laughs> um i don't know that Oppenheimer will be the one. I haven't seen it yet, so maybe I'll be proven wrong. But I kind of suspect it'll be one of those things. He'll have to be much older. The thing about The Departed is that Marty was much older. And The Departed always felt like it was kind of... I like The Departed a lot. I love. I think The Departed is great fun. It's one of the most fun Scorsese movies, which is a very weird thing to say. Um, but that felt like it was kind of an anointing and inevitability. Where like the, the famous thing is they had like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola read. Did they open? Was it Best Director or Best yeah, Picture? Best Picture. Uh, best Sorry, picture. Best Director. You, I beg your pardon. Yeah, be, Best Director. And you're standing there going, 
if it's anybody but Scorsese, this is just humiliating for everybody involved. <laughs> like, there's like, can you imagine if they get like his best friends to come up and hand the Oscar to? I would have been like 2006 ish. So, yeah, I don't know who it would have been, but somebody else, Alfonso Caron or whoever. And they're like, yeah, here you go. Congratulations. Enjoy your Oscar. Um, like the, the we did get to see I... a version of that with uh, was it with Chadwick Boseman where yes. everyone was expecting it was like, and the winner is Anthony Hopkins who's in bed at Wales <laughs> yeah that was such a miscalculation on so many levels particularly like the Joaquin Phoenixness of it like mm. there was no redundancy in there whatsoever like Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor he's never somebody who's comfortable in like the public light mm. so just swap the swap the winners so that instead of like Joaquin Phoenix handing the Oscar, you get the best actress winner from last year to hand over the Oscar. So at least it's not awkward because like that moment where, where Chadwick Boseman doesn't win and Anthony Hopkins is not there. Like the, the weirdest part of that is Joaquin Phoenix is going, uh, so uh, goodbye. I guess that's it. I guess we're done. Um, <laughs> Even the so, fact that they had best actor on last, they were so sure yeah, of it. They were so sure. It's such a bad idea when you don't know the outcome of it. But I, I honestly, I suspect that it will have to be a late career thing. I suspect it'll have to be a he's done, you know, he's kind of done enough or he's given enough to Hollywood that Hollywood feels like it owes him back. So it's going to have to be something that comes later. That said, I haven't seen Oppenheimer. I don't know. But it's like, when was the last big summer? I suppose everything everywhere all at once was a big summer release. But it's like outside of that, when was the last time a prestige piece that came out out of outside of award season kind of swept or cleared? I don't know. Watch this, bro. Barbie will win Best Picture. That's it. Exactly. That'll be the big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Credit Kerwig, back to back director. No, um, but uh, well, I mean, I say that like Jordan, uh, sorry, Jordan Peterson, uh, sorry, Jordan Peele, Jordan. Peele. Oh, was, yeah, two very different people. Yeah, Jordan Peele uh, not getting a director nomination for Nope, Nope, not getting locked out entirely was shocking mm. to me. That was that was shocking um, last year. Wasn't a huge fan of that. Oh, no, I, I, no. Oh. <laughs> I thought it looked beautiful. I thought the cast was fantastic. Again, it was just I don't know. It, I, I'm not a big fan of the the, the quote unquote the elevated horror. I'm just I'm a simple creature in that <laughs> standpoint. It was like, is is the film scary? No, but it really makes you think. No, I want it to be scary. <laughs> I thought Nope was kind of more like Spielbergian. Like I felt it felt like it was uh, kind of an album, pushing album away film, from. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like it was Peel kind of pushing away from the idea of like him as a strictly horror guy. It was him doing what Greta Gerwig's doing with Barbie, which is like, I am not the director you think I am. Mm. I, I kind of liked it. There I was mean, greatness great? in it, like the, the scene with the monkey on the, the set of the TV show. Again, and it's kind of you're holding people to a higher standard. It's like, you can do better. Like, I'm not going to hold this to the same standard. Even the Indiana Jones film where I'm like, yeah, this is just a piece of shit. <laughs> Because I, I I know this is kind of the best you're gonna do, or even something like the Flash, where you're like, oh yeah, no, that was grand because it's an absolute <laughs> mess. Whereas I'm not gonna, whereas you know Christopher Nolan or you know Jordan Peele, I was like, you can do better than what you're doing. I'm trying to think. So I'm looking and looking at possible contenders. It's like, wouldn't it be great if it was Killers of the Flower Moon? Like if <laughs> Apple took home two Best Picture Oscars, like you know before Amazon or Netflix got one. Um, but yeah, Maestro. I mean, maybe who knows? But I I I part of me is i think nolan is too populist for the academy as it ex exists right now i think he kind of probably has to get into his old age and kind of become cycle back into being kind of a respectable old lovable movie grandpa like scorsese was before they give him the oscar um yeah. it's yeah. odd like i love that we we're like so kubrick is the point of comparison for nolan and i'm like no 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 award oscar wise is probably gonna be more scorsese <laughs>
Maestro that or Bradley Cooper. That looks like it could be one of them. I'm flicking through the the contenders here as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the, like again, the thing that fascinates me about that is that like, remember how A Star Is Born was like, everyone's like, this is gonna win Best Picture as soon as it premieres, and then it just it just dies. It just kind of disappears in the award season race. That's the year like that's Green Book, isn't it? That's the year Green yeah. Book won. Like it's like, remember when that like a star is born premiered and everyone's like, just give it the Oscar now. Yeah. Like, just don't waste time. Just hand it the Oscar. Do everybody else the courtesy. Um, it's kind of interesting. I'm wondering, like, Ma- Maestro maybe a makeup, could be a makeup. Uh well, looking at the uh looking at the photos, it's definitely a makeup movie, but it could be a kind of a makeup awards contender, uh, in terms of like, well, look. Cooper, sorry we uh, we didn't give it to you last time. Every time I look at the, the winners, I just keep remembering Coda. And I was like, geez, yeah, Coda, a film that nobody saw. Is the best <laughs> so, surely Chris Nolan deserves it more than Coda is going to deserve. But 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 again again, it's it's the demographics of, of the awards where like and again it's it's very good that they broaden out the kind of the the voting pool and they've made the academy more diverse and stuff. But it does mean that a lot of the old kind of muscular kind of new Hollywood inflected kind of seventies style filmmaking isn't as popular as it once was. So I, I honestly do think that you're gonna have to wait to get to a point where there's a you can build a consensus around Nolan that is a like a narrative. It has to be a narrative. There has to be something, and I don't know that Oppenheimer's there. Um, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding. Maybe Oppenheimer will arrive, and people will be like, "Yeah, it's it's saving cinema," but it's just odd that it's coming after like Mission Impossible: uh, Dead Reckoning Part One, in, in which Tom Cruise is literally saving Hollywood <laughs> from the algorithm. Um, the nihilist in me would just love to see you know, an ashen face, Killian Murphy and Chris Nolan there as Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie walk up on stage to take the award, start painting the Oscar pink. <laughs> um, see, my, my, one of my favorite Oscar stories is like uh, Ileana Douglas, um, who was dating Scorsese during the 90s. And she tells a story about how ticked off he was about like Goodfellas not winning Best Director because he knew he was going to lose Best Picture to Costner and he was going to lose to Dances with Wolves. But he was like, I think I have a shot of getting like Best Director. And apparently what really like he was really upset about was that like when he got home, he's like, they seated it in the front so my mother could get a great view of me losing. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that doesn't happen, Chris Nolan. Darren, it was an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much. And if you haven't read it, Christopher Nolan, A Critical Study of the Films is absolutely fantastic. I'd really recommend checking it out. It was a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Darren Mooney, thank you. Thanks, Andy. All right, talk to you soon.